Morning. Let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge that we are always dependent upon your grace. That's true in every area of our lives, but especially true when it comes to rightly understanding and applying your word. So, Father, please help us now. Please speak to your people through your word, by your spirit, that our hearts and our lives might be truly changed, that through the preaching of your word you would shape and mold your children into the image of your son. Pray also for those in this room who do not yet know you. Pray that you would use this sermon to open their eyes, to see the glory and the beauty and the majesty of Christ. Pray all this in his name. Amen. Well, if you would please take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 7. Our passage for this week, uh, verses 24 through 35, really just a continuation of the narrative that we began last week about John the Baptist. And you'll remember last week we spoke about some of the doubts that John the Baptist was struggling with as he was locked up in prison. Are you, Jesus, are you truly the Messiah? Now perhaps some of that wavering faith was because of his own circumstances. The king that I've been talking about, the king that I've been pointing to, the king that I've been rejoicing in, well, he's finally here, but then why am I, his messenger, locked up in prison? Does that mean that he's not actually the Messiah? Add to that, and this is a common theme that we see throughout the Gospels, add to that the fact that Jesus wasn't quite who most Jews expected him to be. Where's the overthrow of the Romans? Where's the earthly kingdom? Where's the judgment upon our enemies? And perhaps John had bought into that mindset himself. Whatever the reason, John's struggling in his faith, And so he sends two of his disciples to Jesus, hoping to get some assurance. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we wait for another? How does Jesus then answer them? Well, he does miracles. Not just any miracles, but miracles that the Old Testament prophet Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would do when the Messiah would come. Go and tell John. Go and tell John that these prophecies are being fulfilled in me. Don't let the fact that I maybe don't fit your preconceived mold of what the Messiah should be like, don't let that cause you to stumble. Don't let that uh, allow you to take offense. Instead, continue to trust and believe the very thing that you've been saying your whole ministry, that I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that I am the Messiah. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And so we can think of last week's passage as Jesus addressing John's doubts about him. Well, in our passage for today, Jesus pivots. Now he's addressing the crowds concerning their doubts about John. Right, so last week was Jesus addressing John's doubts about Jesus, and this week is Jesus addressing the people's doubts about John. 
But as we're going to see, it's much bigger than just John. This is about much more than just John. Because if John is legit, like if John really is a prophet sent from God, well, the implications don't just stop with John. There's greater implications about how the people should then respond to the one whom John, as a prophet of God, was pointing to. Massive implications about how then the crowd should respond to Jesus. But first, let's simply read our text. Don't zone out here, right? This is the best part of the sermon. This is us reading the God-breathed, Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God, right? Everything else in the sermon is just building off of this. So Luke chapter 7, verses 24 through 35. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. To organize our thoughts as we go through this passage, if you're taking notes, I've got three points for you this morning. Point number one is the faithful minister. Point number two, we've got the fickle crowds. And then point number three, we'll look at the friend of sinners. So let's start at the top. Point number one, the faithful minister. We have here in this section, Jesus coming to the defense of his messenger, coming to the defense of John the Baptist, and telling the crowds about how John is a faithful minister. Now, why would Jesus do that? Well, remember, the the crowds have been following Jesus everywhere. Uh, We don't know exactly where he is at this point in time, but his last known location, remember Nain, where he raised the widow's son? Well, there, Luke tells us that there was a great crowd with him. And so presumably, that great crowd, in some shape or form, is still with him, And so the crowd may have heard the question from John's disciples. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? It's possible that the crowds heard that reaction, uh, that interaction, rather, and that some of them are now beginning to question 
John the Baptist himself, beginning to think badly of John the Baptist. Wow, that guy, that guy who once preached with so much conviction, you think all that was a show? Maybe he's, maybe he's not who we thought he was. Maybe he's not a true prophet of God. Or it might be that the crowd really didn't pick up on the interaction between Jesus and John's disciples, but that interaction with John's disciples, that leads Jesus to now address the crowd because he knows that some of them perceived John negatively. Maybe as a result of him being imprisoned. Well, what kind of prophet is he? Getting thrown in jail like that. Either way, here Jesus comes to the defense of John. And he does it by asking the crowd a series of questions. First, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? A reed, you know, those tall plants that they grow in kind of like marshy or swampy ground. And uh, they're so tall and they're so thin that they're easily shaken by a strong gust. And so that's a metaphor a word picture for a person with weak convictions. Or it's someone who kind of waffles and easily goes back and forth. Just kind of goes with whatever the current tide of opinions is. You know, in Ephesians, when Paul talks about immature believers and how they're tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, that's basically the same picture that Jesus is using here. Every wind of doctrine blows, and, and that reed is shaken. Well, people, you went out into the wilderness to see John. Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? Did you go out to see someone with weak convictions? Of course not. I mean, sure, John may currently have questions. He's wrestling with. His faith is not perfect, and so he's asking himself some of these questions in his heart right now about the identity of the Messiah. But really, the one thing that you can't say about John is that he's just a reed shaken by the wind. I mean, look at Matthew chapter 3. Just listen to the, the fire that's coming out of this man's mouth. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I mean, that's bold and courageous. That's him calling out the religious establishment. He's calling out the spiritual elites of the day. These are the the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he's calling them a brood of vipers. He's commanding them to repent. This man is an oak tree, right? He is is deeply rooted with firm convictions. He is no no reed shaken by the wind. Speaking of conviction and boldness, I mean... Remember why he's having to send delegates to Jesus in the first place? Like, why doesn't he just go by himself? Well, it's because he confronted Herod on his sin. He went straight to one of the most powerful people all around, and he he called him out, confronted him on his sin, and it cost him his freedom, and it would eventually cost him his life. John the Baptist is no reed shaken by the wind. 
He's a powerful and faithful servant of God with strong convictions about the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, listen, you folks wouldn't have gone all the way out to the desert, all the way out out into the wilderness to see him if he was just a reed shaken by the wind. Then Jesus continues with a second set of questions. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? And that's not John the Baptist. I'm just taking these questions at face value. What did John wear? He wore a garment of camel's hair. Like, just saying that makes me itchy. This man is not one of those guys walking around with, like, 100% Egyptian cotton Versace t-shirts. His clothing is as rough as it gets. But Jesus is addressing more than just fashion sense here. It's also what the clothing represents. And we know that from what he says next. Look at the next line. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing live in luxury. They're in king's courts. So you think about the king's courtiers, those who live in luxury in king's courts. What kind of people do they tend to be? They tend to be people who say whatever the king wants to hear and do whatever the king wants them to do. People who will please the king and make him happy basically reads, shaken by whatever wind the king happens to be blowing. It's a great illustration of this, this story from 1 Kings chapter 22. You got King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat. They're the, the kings of Israel and Judah, respectively. They're about to go to battle together, and Ahab, Ahab's got like 400 prophets in his court, and he asks his prophets, hey, are we gonna win? And they're all like, in one voice, in unison. They're like, yeah, Ahab, you're going to win because you're awesome. Ahab rules. Jehoshaphat's got a little more sense to him. He's a pretty faithful king, unlike ungodly Ahab. And so Jehoshaphat senses that Ahab's just surrounded himself with like yes men who are going to tell him whatever he wants to hear. We're going to speak to him smooth things. So Jehoshaphat's like, wait a minute. Hold on. Isn't there anyone else here? Like, isn't there like a real prophet And Ahab says, There is yet one man by whom we may acquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imla. But I hate him. I hate him for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. See that Ahab had surrounded himself with 400 prophets who just tickled his ears. The kind of prophets who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury in king's courts. And he had banned the one true prophet, Micaiah, from being anywhere near his court because he didn't like that Micaiah actually preached the truth. So what is John? Well, John is a Micaiah. He is not one of the 400. I mean, just think about this. You think about a guy who became as popular as John did, preaching as hard of a message as he preached. I mean, you can only imagine how comfortable of a life he could have led if he would have just told people like King Herod what King Herod wanted to hear. But John didn't live to curry anybody's favor, certainly not that of the king. He spoke brutally, honestly to him, told him exactly what he didn't want to hear, the truth. He spoke about sin and righteousness and judgment. And as a result, he's living in the farthest thing from a king's court. He's living in the king's dungeon. So don't think that John is somehow like weak in his convictions. He's some kind of vacillating yes man. No, nothing could be further from the truth. 
So Jesus continues, what then did you go out to see? You went out to the wilderness to see something, or rather someone. You didn't go out to see a reed shaking in the wind. You didn't go out to see a man in soft clothing. You didn't go out to see a a weak prophet or a false prophet or a yes man prophet. Okay, so what did you go out to see? You went out to see a true prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Now remember that a prophet is just one who speaks for God and who speaks the very words of God. And we've known since the introduction of this book, right, the birth story of John and then the ministry of John in chapter 3, like we've known forever that John is a true prophet of God. But in what sense is John more than a prophet? Well, first look at the next verse. Jesus says, this is he of whom it is written. I mean, think about that. John is not only a prophet, but he's a prophet who himself was prophesied about by other prophets. Malachi and Isaiah, right? They wrote about him as the messenger who would go and prepare the way. So he is a prophet who was prophesied about by other prophets. But even more than the fact that he was prophesied about, we'll consider what he was prophesied to do. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And so of all the prophets, only John the Baptist had the privilege of going directly before the Lord to prepare his way. Many prophets spoke of the Messiah. Many prophets pointed to, figuratively speaking, the Messiah. But of the prophets, only John could physically point to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Turn over a few pages to Luke chapter 10. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples, but it's also true for John the Baptist in contrast to the prophets who preceded him. Look at Luke 10, 23. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings, right, those guys that came before, they desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So the other prophets could say, Messiah is coming each in his own way. John could say the Messiah is here. Like like he's right there. I see him. Of all the prophets who came before Jesus, only John could say, John 134, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. And so John the Baptist is more than a prophet. But now look at how Jesus takes it even a step further. Among those born of women, None is greater than John. Those born of women, that's just a a way to refer to human beings. And so among human beings, excluding, of course, the God-man, among human beings, no one is greater than John the Baptist. You're like, really? Here's this man from this unremarkable family in the hill country of Judea. He spent his whole life living out in the wilderness and dressed in camel's hair. He's a man who's now imprisoned. He's running away in Herod's dungeon. He's going to soon be executed. And you're telling me that that man is the greatest man who's ever lived? That that man is greater than Alexander the Great, Nebuchadnezzar the Great, Cyrus the Great, Herod the Great? Maybe you remember what the angel Gabriel said about John before he was born. 
that he would be great, but maybe not great in the world's economy, but great in a far more significant way. Right? Luke 1.15, he will be great. John the Baptist, John will be great before the Lord. And so John was great before the Lord as a forerunner to the Messiah. John was great before the Lord and diligently and faithfully fulfilling that role all the way to his imprisonment and his death. John was great before the Lord in his humility in fulfilling that great role. I mean, think about it. Maybe a lesser man would have let that wonderful privilege get to his head. A lesser man might start thinking like he's kind of some big deal himself. I'm the forerunner to the Messiah. There's a great line about this guy, Simon the Sorcerer, in Acts chapter 8. It says that he was saying that he himself was somebody great. He let his tricks kind of inflate his ego. Oh, I'm someone great. But that's not John. John knew that true greatness in the kingdom, that it starts with humility. And so he never keeps the attention on himself. He would always deflect to Jesus. He must increase. I must decrease. John the Baptist was great. Great in the eyes of God. Among those born of women, none is greater than John. And so we're reminded once again that greatness in God's eyes is quite different from greatness in the world's eyes. And I think we're challenged, perhaps, to ask ourselves which of those standards we default to in assessing our own lives, the lives of our peers and friends and parents, the lives of our children. But as thought-provoking and controversial as everything that Jesus has said so far has been, the next statement just kind of blows everything else out of the water. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So John's the greatest person who's ever lived. But the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than the greatest person who's ever lived. How can that be? Now, just to be clear, right, none of this is meant to be a shot at John in any way. Right? Like, this is not saying that John himself is not in the kingdom of God. Now, look at what Jesus says a few chapters later in Luke 13. He says, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. So obviously all the prophets includes the man who Jesus just said was more than a prophet. So none of this is meant to bring John down in any way, and that's obvious from the context. The rest of the passage, Jesus is trying to exalt and honor John in the eyes of the people. But the end goal here was never the veneration and exaltation of John the Baptist. And I think that's Jesus' point here. Like, yeah, John is great. John is the greatest. But remember that in his work that made him the greatest, in his work, he's just pointing to something that is much greater than himself. The kingdom of God and its king. And so, yeah, John did great things on earth as the forerunner, as the prophet. But even the greatest accomplishments here, they pale in comparison to the spiritual blessings of the kingdom of God. Like simply being in the kingdom of God, even as the least one there, 
That's infinitely more important than any earthly role you can play in its preparation. Now that's worth spending a little time meditating on. In our Christian walks, I mean, we can, we can become so consumed with the things that we feel like we have to do. So much to do, so much to do. And, and nobody in the, this room is more guilty of that than perhaps me. But nothing that we'll ever do in this life even compares with the great privilege of simply being in the kingdom of God. Point number one, the faithful minister. That brings us to point number two. We've got the fickle crowds. You remember back in chapter two, remember Simeon? Simeon prophesied that Jesus would divide people. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Some are going to fall, some are going to rise because of him. He's going to divide people. What's true of Jesus is also true of Jesus' messenger. And so John the Baptist was a polarizing figure, right? One who would divide. And by and large, the way in which you received John, the way in which you reacted to John, well, that was indicative of the way in which you received and reacted to Jesus. And so look at verse 29. Got this kind of parenthetical statement here by Luke. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized by the baptism of John. And so when they heard Jesus' praise for John, when they heard Jesus authenticate John's ministry, when they listened to how Jesus came to John's defense, these people, including tax collectors, They declared God just. They affirmed that God was right. That God is true. That his word is true. That his judgment is correct. God is right. I am a sinner. God is right. I do deserve judgment as a result. God is right. I I do need to repent. God is right. I do need a savior. And so as an outward sign that they acknowledge that God is right in all of those things, that God is just in all of those things that he's saying through his prophet John the Baptist— well, these people were baptized with the baptism of John. Right? Their submission to that baptism is their acknowledgement that God is right in all of those things. But of course, we know that the baptism of John was never an end in itself. This is how Paul puts it in Acts 19. John baptized with the baptism of repentance. But what is the point of this baptism of repentance? Telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And so these folks, folks like tax collectors, they responded favorably to John. And all John was doing was preparing them for Jesus. But John would divide. And not everybody was on board. Look at verse 30. The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Pharisees and the lawyers, when it says lawyers there, you should not be picturing Caleb Smith and Nathan Santa Maria. These are guys picture, uh, these, these are guys trained in, in the Jewish law, right? An interchangeable word for this would be scribes, right? Scribes and Pharisees, lawyers and Pharisees, Pharisees. Uh, these, are, these are experts in the law. 
And so these guys, in their self-righteousness, well, they rejected John. They rejected John's message. They rejected John's repentance. We're not sinners. We don't need to be baptized by you. We don't need to repent. And in doing so, in contrast to the tax collectors who declare God just, who said that God was true, well, these guys were essentially declaring God to be a liar. That what God said, through not only uh, his word as a whole, but also specifically through his prophet John, that's not true. Here's how 1 John 1.10 puts it. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. And his word is not in us. That's what these guys were doing. And so they reject the purpose of God by rejecting John. They reject the purpose of God by ultimately rejecting Jesus. They reject the purpose of God by rejecting God's only means of saving sinners. The gospel. And so now Jesus addresses the crowd. He's specifically speaking here to those in the crowd in this second category, right? Those who rejected the purpose of God, who rejected John and Jesus. And he says, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? Now, whenever you see that phrase, this generation in the Gospels, it is almost always used in a negative sense. You know why parents give their children middle names? It's so the kids will know when they're in trouble. Because when a parent says a kid's middle name, it's almost always used in a negative sense. In the same way, when Jesus says this generation, it's almost always used in a negative sense. Don't take my word for it, though. We see this term actually six times in Luke chapter 11. So I just want to take a quick look there. I want you to be looking for how Jesus uses that term, this generation, positively or negatively. Starting in verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. Okay, that's pretty clear. That's bad. Seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. That's bad. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Again, bad. Continuing in verse 50. So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. That's really bad. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. One more, Luke 17. But first he, this is Jesus talking about himself. First, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by, there it is again, this generation. So you see my point. This generation, it's not like the baby boomers or Gen X or millennials. It has nothing to do with an age cohort at all. It's referring to spiritual deadness. So what is this generation like? Well, to point out their fickleness. Point number two, the fickle crowds. And Jesus is going to use an illustration from children's games. So picture in your mind's eye a group of children. They're, they're playing in the marketplace Children always like to imitate what they see grown-ups doing. 
And back then, the kind of two main events in terms of social functions would have been weddings and funerals. And so first, one of the kids is like, hey guys, let's play wedding. It's so fun. Uh, You be the groom, you be the bride. Uh, You be the best man, you be the maid of honor, I'll be the officiant. It's going to be so much fun. And the other kids are like, nah, we don't want to play wedding. It's too merry, it's too jovial, it's too lighthearted. Okay, fine. Then let's play funeral. It'll be so fun, right? You be the mourners, right? You be the corpse. Uh, I'll be the officiant. And the kids are like, no, we don't want to play funeral. That's too grim. That's too sad. That's too depressing. And so we played the flute for you. Let's play wedding. And you didn't dance. And we sang a dirge. Let's play funeral. And you did not weep. The picture here is of sulking, whining, spoiled and bratty kids who are just impossible to please and never satisfied with anything. That's what this generation is like. Led by the Pharisees and lawyers and all who would follow them, that's what they're like. And he ties it all together in verses 33 and 34. John the Baptist, he came eating no bread, drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. And so John is very much on his own. He was in a people person by any, any standards. Like he didn't hang out with the crowds, kind of in the wilderness by himself. He ate no bread and drank no wine. Uh, remember, we've been talking about in this book uh, how in that culture, eating and drinking meals together would be such an important part of one's social life. And so John kept to himself, and one of the ways that we know he kept to himself was that he ate locusts and wild honey. Like, nobody's inviting themselves over to dinner at John's place. Nobody's socializing with him. Nobody's about this whole locusts and honey thing. John was to himself. And in addition to that, John preached a fiery message of repentance, of judgment, A message of sackcloth and ashes. And so because of all of that, because of who he was and what he preached, well, you didn't like him. And so you accused him of having a demon. But the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so here's Jesus, on the other hand, in contrast to John the Baptist, John kept to himself in the wilderness. Jesus is always hanging out with massive crowds. John ate locusts by himself. Jesus is eating and drinking with tax collectors. He's preaching to them grace and forgiveness. Remember the illustration? Let's play wedding. Well, Jesus himself describes his ministry as a wedding. Remember the end of chapter 5? Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? This is a wedding. Here's a guy who makes wine at weddings. Like he is everybody's favorite wedding guest. And he's preaching the forgiveness of sins. He's preaching to even the worst of sinners. And because of all of that, because of who he is and how he's presenting his message, because of all of that, you don't like him. You accuse him of being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so in John and Jesus... Right? You, you have these two extremes in terms of personalities, reputations, but you have the same message. I mean, don't get the impression that Jesus and John have like conflicting messages. No, not at all. Right? It's not that, well, Jesus only preached grace and John only preached repentance. Like they're, they're playing good cop, bad cop or something like that. No, Jesus preached repentance. Unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. And John preached grace. 
Think about it. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that's grace. You don't earn the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus just takes it away. He's the Lamb of God who takes it away. That's grace. And so Jesus preaches repentance. John preaches grace. It's not that they're preaching conflicting messages. It's just that they're perceived as bringing different emphases. And certainly they live very different lives. But that's the point. It ultimately doesn't matter how the gospel is presented or how repentance and grace are presented. Hard hearts will reject the gospel. Hard-hearted unbelievers will always have something to criticize because unbelief is basically just looking for any excuse to not submit to the word of God and its authority. He has a demon. He's a glutton and and a drunkard. If you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If you're a critical, hard-hearted unbeliever, you're always going to find something to criticize. And believers, I should say, we should not think that we are somehow immune from this. Unfortunately, critical spirits can often be found in churches among God's people. Like the flute is played and we don't want to dance. The dirge is sung and we we don't want to weep. Basically, everything that happens in church is an opportunity not to rejoice in God and his gospel and his people, but an opportunity to criticize and and dissect and and find fault. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a a place for good and helpful, constructive feedback in, in any church. When the focus is removed from the glory of God and the truths of his word that are being preached, and instead are put on finding fault with everything that happens, well, we might just be more like the Pharisees and the lawyers than we would think. But here's the question. So you've got these Pharisees and lawyers, those who reject John and Jesus. Well, are they right? Or is it the tax collectors and sinners, those who accepted John and Jesus? Are they right? Like the crowd is divided, but who's in the right? And how could we know? Well, now look at verse 35. Wisdom is justified. Wisdom is proved right by all her children. Basically, the proof of who is right, well, it's in the people. Look at the lives of these tax collectors and sinners who have been saved by grace. Look at the changes in their lives. Look at the fruit that they produce. Look at the humility and goodness and godliness and love that now marks their lives. And in contrast... Well, look at the lives of these Pharisees and lawyers who reject the purpose of God. Look at their lives. Look at the barrenness of fruit. Look at the pride and self-righteousness and ungodliness that marks their lives. And then you'll know who's right. Because wisdom is justified by all her children. Point number two, the fickle crowds. That brings us to point number three the friend of sinners. The friend of sinners. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Now we might think of that as like a positive term that that really highlights his grace. But it's very clear from the context that it was originally meant as an insult. How dare this man hang out with tax collectors and sinners? How can this man who claims to be the Messiah, how can he be hanging around all these lowlifes? 
See the same idea in other places in the gospel also. Look at Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. They're all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the Pharisees and the lawyers, they grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That is an insult. Or Luke 19.7. When they saw it, and it refers to Jesus hanging out with Zacchaeus, the tax collector, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. He is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But what was originally meant as an insult, brothers and sisters, right, to the people of God, like there is no sweeter name in the universe than friend of sinners. Because what are we? What are we but wretched, vile sinners? Uh, we've all sinned in so many ways, uh, some of which you'd be willing to share with others, and uh, most of which you'd never want anybody to really know. And all of this sin is against a holy and righteous God. And so our sin puts us at enmity with God, right? We're enemies of God. His wrath remains upon us. And there's nothing that we can do to remove that wrath, to remove the stain of our sin, to remove the guilt of our transgressions. We are guilty. We are condemned to judgment. We deserve an eternity in hell. Why? Well, in a word, because we are sinners. But Jesus is a friend of sinners. This man receives sinners. The friend of sinners. He came for sinners. Remember our call to worship? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Instead of destroying us like we deserved, like he had every right to do, he came to redeem sinners, to reconcile them to himself, to take them from being enemies of God and now making them his children. And the friend of sinners, he dies for sinners. But God shows his love for us in the while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He accomplishes this by bearing our sin on the cross in our place. Where he becomes sin for us. And he grants us his perfect righteousness. And so though we are sinners, great sinners, vile sinners, well, God now sees us perfectly righteous as his children. And friends, this friend of sinners, well, he calls sinners to come to him. He calls us to believe John the Baptist. He, the John the Baptist is a true prophet of God, more than a prophet. And to thus look to the one to whom John pointed, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he calls us to cast our lot with those tax collectors and sinners who declared God to be right, who declared God just, who believed John and thus looked to Jesus I am a sinner. I do need to repent. I do need grace. I need forgiveness. I need a savior. Even as the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God, we're called to cast our lot with those who embraced it. 
And he calls us not to be like those rotten children who will come up with any reason they can to not believe. Any reason they can to reject God's message. But to simply take God at his word and trust his son. Oh, brothers and sisters, that is something worth reflecting on. Jesus is a friend of sinners. A friend of sinners like us. Father, we pray that you would grant us grace, that you would open our eyes, and that we who are your people would rejoice in this simple yet infinitely profound truth that Jesus is our friend, that he is a friend of sinners, that he has redeemed sinners, that he has saved sinners, and that he has reconciled sinners like us to a holy God. Father, we pray that we, your people, would find our joy and our comfort in every need in that glorious truth. Father, we also pray for those in this room who do not yet know you. Pray that today they would see Christ as the friend of sinners and place their trust in him. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.